This morning we are continuing in our series that we've called over the, for the summertime, uh, Vitals. Uh, as I share with you, uh, there's eight weeks and there's basically two, two weeks on each topic. So there's four topics that we're taking a look at. And we began with spiritual formation. We talked about how God's desire is that Christ would be formed in us. And as he is formed in us, we would be transformed more and more into the image of the Son, which is all about this growth in discipleship. discipleship. So spiritual formation is about the work of God and doing that. And it's, it's, it's certainly dependent on, upon God for him to transform us. But we also recognize that there are certain practices in which we can engage, things like prayer, study, meditation, silence, solitude, fasting, worship, and many others. And those things, they don't change us, but they put us in this place where God can do the work of transforming us. And so we're people of the word, we're people of prayer, we're people of community, we're people of worship, because as we are participating in those habits or disciplines, God is at work in changing us. So spiritual formation was one of those four vital topics that we looked at this summer. Then we moved into marriage and family and we began with husbands. We saw how the call on husbands was for us to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And the challenges that come from that, and and we all recognize that the, the, the incredible calling that is, and it's only by the grace and power of God that we as sinful human beings, as, as, as men, that we can live into that. And so God helps us to do that. And then we take a look at parenting. And we saw how uh, we as parents are not to exasperate our children. We're not to bring them to frustration. We're not to do things that embitter them or enrage them. But instead, we train them and we instruct them. As Eugene Peterson says in that tra- the translation of that passage from, from, uh, from, from Galatians, he talks about how we, we, we instead of, oh, I'm sorry, Ephesians, instead of, instead of frustrating our kids, we, we take them by the hand, he says in his paraphrase, and we lead them in the way of the master. And so that's what parenting, again, recognizing the challenge of that and that we, again, will fall short. You know, it's, it's only again, by the power of God that we can lean into that, not shrink back from the challenge, acknowledge the, the, the incredible task that we have and the responsibility that we have as well as the privilege, but also at the same time, we trust that God is going to help us do it. This morning, as you can see on the top of your notes, we're talking about authenticity. As we, th- we speak of authenticity, it's, pretty important, it's a pretty important topic for us. I think it it's definitely uh, fits into what we would call a vital because for us here at Calvary, it's actually one of our, our four core values. And, and when, you look, when you think about core values, I know some strategic planners are very adamant about the fact that core values must be those things that you're doing, not that you want to do. Some of you from, are familiar with that. They must be actual and not aspirational. And so I think... In reality, this is one of the things that Calvary does display. And I think that one of the things we do hear in feedback from people is that this is not a place of pretense. It's not a place where people put on a facade. These are real people, and they acknowledge that. But at the same time, I realize that there is still room for us to grow, right, especially in this topic. And so we want to talk this morning about what does it mean to be real. Now, being real can be a little bit dangerous, right? Uh, one of my favorite artists, Johnny Cash, said this about uh, being real. He said, trust gets you killed, love gets you hurt, and being real gets you hated. And there's probably a little bit of truth to that, right? Sometimes I joke with people, if they pay me a compliment, I'll say something like, well, you just don't know me well enough yet. 
I really, that's really, and, and as I was thinking about that this week, I've probably said that, I don't know, dozens of times, maybe over a hundred times I've said that. And I'm like, that's not really communicating the message I want to communicate. Because I want, if authenticity is important, and I should want to be known and still be loved, right? I shouldn't expect that if they really knew me, then they wouldn't like me anymore. But there's a little bit of that, isn't it, in all of us? If we're real, if they really know us, then will they still like us? I mean, let alone love us, right? I was listening to a message uh, at a church in Grafton, which is outside of Milwaukee, where my son Eli attends. And the pastor there was uh, talking about uh, the, the, the reality of what, what exists now for us as we live in this digital culture, as we live in this, you know, this online reality that we're all very familiar with, we participate in. He wasn't slamming it at all, but he said one of the things that is interesting about that is instead of people wanting to be known, now we strive to be noticed, right? How many likes is this going to get? How many retweets is this going to get? How many mentions am I going to have? What's my follower, you know, amount? Being noticed has become so important for us. I don't know if being known is keeping up with that same level of intensity. Now, next week we're going to talk about uh, how we can be real with each other. And that's really important. Because when you think about it, the story of people is that, that are sitting in churches all around the world are very, very, it's very, very common to have stories like Jocelyn's. Like Jocelyn, her life is a mess. Her drinking problem is out of control. Her husband has just refused to cover it up anymore. Everyone around her sees Jocelyn's problem, but they all pretend like everything is just fine. It's just like this classic case of denial. Every Sunday, Jocelyn and her family get in their car, dress up, go to church, and to everyone, the way they're noticed is they look like the perfect family. Everyone at church looks at Jocelyn and her family as the model family, they just look so put together. And Joe, Joe's behind Jocelyn in the seat, in the pew. And everybody loves Joe, especially all the guys, because Joe was a college athlete. And so for some guys, it's with a little bit of envy. They wish they would have had his ability. He's a good-looking guy, still takes care of himself. And he's filled with these stories of he was with this guy who's now in the league and all that kind of stuff. And, and he's very, you know, it's one of those guys that you just look at, you're like, wow, man, this guy's got it all. He's got a good job. But when Joe's all alone, his heart is filled with emptiness because he just doesn't have the ability to sustain long-term relationships. His marriage lasted about six months. And over the years, he's kind of even driven away everyone close to him with his short fuse. But that Sunday, when they say, hey, say hey to everyone around you, the guy who reaches out his hand out to Joe says, how are things going, man? And Joe quickly says, of course, right? Great, never been better. Joe and Jocelyn's story might be in this room today. 
or something like it, as well as in churches all around the world. So it's important for us to be real with each other. And I I would suggest to you that the list I'm going to give you, as I often say to you, I don't imagine in any way that the list I want to share with you is exhaustive. Like, there's more aspects and maybe even better aspects. Maybe you would come up with a better list than I would of, of, of what a being real culture looks like. But I would suggest to you that, that, that at least part of these, some of these are really strong contributors. One of that is that we are honest. If a culture is not honest, how can it, real, can it be real, right? Because that in part and parcel would be, an, uh, you know, a deny, one denying the other. I also think that an authentic or a real culture is one of simplicity. It's not made up of so many layers of complexity that you can't find your way through to figure out how you can know someone and them know you, right? It's not that level of complexity. So it's honest. It's simple. I also think that a being real culture is clear. Now, some of you know one of the uh, adjectives that precede my name to some of my, some of my friends. Some of you know this. I won't make eye contact with the guy who first called me this, but I'm kind of known as Disclaimer Dave because before Dave wants to tell you something, especially if it's something that maybe takes a little bit of a position on something or it's sharing a little bit of deeper feelings about something or it's maybe uh, talking about something that has a little bit more intensity to it, I will offer, before I say what I want to say, I'll offer about two to three minutes of a preface of disclaimers so that they know that I'm not saying this, I'm not saying this, I'm not saying this. And usually the people who now know me well enough say, Dave, don't be a disclaimer, Dave, here. Just tell me what you're thinking. Tell me what you believe. Why? Because, again, and, and that's not being clear, right? I've, I, was, I was reading a book with a, with a brother recently. It's actually in the book, the, that Celebration of Discipline book that I've commended to you for that uh, spiritual formation piece. And in that, over and over, I was challenged in three different disciplines. He talked about how important it is for us to be clear in our speech. Because when we're, not, when we're, out, when we're being unclear in our speech, when we're, when we're unwilling to simply share you know, uh, directly from the, from, from the leading of the Holy Spirit and from what our honest feelings are, then we're trying to put up some sort of wall so that we can protect ourselves. Being real means being sincere. That makes sense, right? If we're, again, so many of these things are almost like synonymous, so to speak, with uh, authenticity that they really don't need much explanation. Fifth, I think, if we're going to have a culture that's real, it's going to require some humility. We're going to have to go into conversations and relationships thinking that we're not always going to be right. It's not always going to be our way. Someone is not always thinking the worst of us, right? There's going to have to be a level of humility and openness in a being real culture for it actually to be a, for it actually to be a culture that is authentic, genuine, real. And the last thing is, as with nearly everything that we endeavor to do as human beings. If we are missing these two things, we will fail. And in a being real culture, we must have the grace and power of God. It is not a human invention. I would suggest to you that authenticity, knowing others and and being fully known is not something that we created. I know it... 
It tends to be something that's more, more trendy. And, you know, we talk about how the millennial generation is a generation that has presumably embraced uh, authenticity at a deeper level, which is interesting when you think about them being the generation that has really ramped up the, the online digital kind of, that, that whole culture. So it's kind of interesting the, the way those things are juxtaposed across from each other. But I would suggest to you again that authenticity is not something that was created in the last 10 or 15 years. The being real has always been what God wanted from us. And so before we take a look at how we're going to be real with each other, we need to experience the grace and power of God. And the scripture is very clear about how that is experienced. So today, we're going to look at God's call to authenticity, to being in real relationship with him first. And if we're not in real relationship with God first, I would suggest to you that, yes, there are some of us that maybe are a little bit better at this than others, but to live out the scriptural call to, to authenticity, to have a genuine culture of community, of love and forbearance and grace and forgiveness and servitude, for that to happen in a culture of people like us, we're completely dependent upon the power and grace of God for that to happen. If being part of Christian community is merely putting on a, on a good front, pretending to be something we're not, then folks, we might as well stop getting up on Sunday mornings and getting together. Stop sending your kids to youth group. Stop getting involved in a small group. Don't engage in outward activities. It's something more than just saying we're all okay. So this morning, we're going to take a look at 1 John, a passage in 1 John. It was a letter that was written by the Apostle John because of his concerns that, that the Christians living in Asia Minor at the time were losing their way in their spiritual journey. John knew that the spiritual life was a difficult journey. It was filled with all sorts of danger to their growth and health. So he wrote this letter to help Christians navigate the unexpected, unexpected like twists and, and turns that would be in the road. He encourages them to find joy in the journey, how they'll find authentic joy in their spiritual journey when they build on the right foundation, when they share with the right companions, when they draw truth from the right source and they focus on the right goal. And so with that in mind, we're going to take a look at a passage from 1 John chapter 1. It's listed there in your notes from the Christian Standard Bible translation. Uh, you can certainly look at that or pull it up on your device. Follow along with me as I read from 1 John chapter 1 from uh, 5 down through verse 10. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. And there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned. We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray for a second. Father God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, 
we pray that you would be our teacher today. We pray that you would help us to see how we can come into a real life right now, real time, present day, actual relationship with the creator and sustainer of all that we see and we don't. That we can be in relationship with you. That becomes the base for us to be in real relationship with each other. So help us, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit to know what you would want us to know today. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you know that one of my favorite movies is uh, the movie called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And uh, some of you might have seen that movie too. Everett, who's a fan of a particular kind of hair jelly, uh, led a group of other uh, convicts who had escaped on a journey to find a treasure that actually didn't end up being a treasure anymore. But what he was trying to do is he was trying to get back to Penny, his wife, or at least he thought he was, she was still his wife. And when he finally caught up with her, the reason that she would not get back with him is she said, and some of you know it, you're not bona fide. But the guy that she was with, and she had told her daughters that, their daughters, that actually George uh, Everett was dead. She said, he, she told them he was dead and that the guy that she wanted to be with, he was bona fide. And so there was a, there's an incredibly funny interaction between Everett and the guy that she would want to marry. Oh, in a, in a Woolsworth store where they get into a fist fight and get you know, kicked out of the Woolsworth store. All because she didn't think that Everett was bona fide. Bonafide simply means genuine, real, authentic. And so what I want to encourage us to think about this morning is, are we bonafide believers? Are we people who, it's not about, did we go to church on Sunday morning? Did we read our Bible today? Did we happen to pray? Are we on some board? Do we serve on some committee? Do we actually teach others? I'm not, all those things are great and wonderful and they can build us up. But are we first and foremost bona fide followers of Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? And here's what I would suggest to you that this passage teaches us about that. The first thing is, this passage reminds us that bona fide believers, we know who we are. We know who we are. Look at that verse 8 again, if you would, in the notes. Excuse me. John says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, if we say we have no sin, then we are liars. One of the critical essential things, and by the way, this is not, this, this word for sin used that, that, that John uses is not plural. He's not, he's not talking about the things that you do. He's talking about the person that you are. It's an orientation, not an act. It's a posture, not a specific thing. And he says that real believers, bona fide believers, because he says if we, if we say we have no sin, that we, then, then basically the, the truth is not in us, then we're liars. You see, one of the key aspects for us to understand that we are, are, are a real follower of Jesus is that we acknowledge that we are imperfect, that we are sinful. 
And I think that, it, that it's important for us to remember, too, that John is writing to believers. People, he, he recognizes, and we're going get to get to this in a minute, that he's, go, he's going to say to them, listen, I'm writing this thing to you so that you won't sin. It's not that he wants them to sin, but he acknowledges that sin is there. And he, and he recognizes that even though they have, been, uh, they have received Jesus as Savior, that they have been recreated, that they are a new being, and that they are filled with God's Holy Spirit, that they still are human beings. And human beings have a sinful orientation. And so that struggle is always going to be very real for us. We're all going to struggle. He's going to, he's going to encourage us to acknowledge the fact that we haven't yet arrived. Paul said it in a different way. He said, not that I have already obtained all this, not that I have already been made perfect, but this thing I do, forgetting what is back here and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the calling that I have, heavenward in Christ Jesus, right? I haven't arrived. I'm not all there. I'm not perfect. But I recognize who I am. And that's why it becomes so dependent upon the grace and power of God. It's not about my effort. It's about my acknowledgement of my identity. That left to my own devices. You know where I take my life? I take my life to a dark place. And I would suggest that though, though some of you have more willpower than I do, so though some of you have a better orientation maybe than I do, that Scripture teaches that for all human beings, we need to recognize that our orientation, our posture, is one of disobedience, rebellion, and ultimately failure in our attempts to be perfect before God. We know who we are. And guess what? Here's the phenomenal truth. God knows and you know what it says? He loves you. There's no one who knows you better than him. He knows that, that orientation. He knows that posture. Then as we're going to get to, as we wrap up today, that's why Jesus was so essential. The second thing is, we know what we've done. Now again, whereas John mentions in verse 8, he talks about, the, about, about our sin orientation Look at, what, look at what it says in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us. And in verse 10, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So now John has moved from the orientation, the posture, the sin nature, so to speak, right? We used, sometimes we'd use the term carnality to talk about that, the fleshliness of ourselves, the fact that we have that orientation. He's moved now from an orientation to acts. We know what we've done. And, and it's not, God isn't wanting us up, up there to, to somehow say, you know, we, we, we have to keep this list and we have to have an open note on our phone at all times that we have everything acknowledged in there of every horrible, rotten, sinful, selfish, racist, um, hateful thing that we've ever done in our life. And those things are things that, right, that people need forgiveness for, right? Greed and lust and power and all, and all sorts of things that we, that we need forgiveness for. It's not so much that we have to keep a laundry list. It's just we acknowledge that we have lived out that, of that sinful nature. We've hurt people. We've hurt ourselves. We've brought angst. We've disappointed. We've frustrated. We've done it. Adam's done it, Mike's done it, Dave's done it, Jason's done it, Karen's done it. We know what we've done. And again, 
in the same way that God knows your orientation and knows your activity, you know what that does to his love quotient for you? Nothing. He can't love you more and he won't love you less. Because scripture said he is love and scripture, scripture, said he, scripture said at the same time that it was out of that love that he gave us Jesus that we who believe would not perish in this state of a sinful orientation and sinful activity, but instead we would have life and an everlasting life. We know who we are. We know what we've done. And we know the necessity, the power of confession. What does it say there in verse 9? If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, that word confess in the original language that is Greek is the word homologeo. And you know what it means, you know, for, uh, you know what the prefix homo means to mean same, right? Homologeo simply means to say the same thing. So by implication, it means to agree with. So when we use the word confession, what we're saying is we are agreeing with whom about our state and our activity. We're agreeing with God. So it's, it's when, we, when, we're, when we're acknowledging it, so that really confession is about acknowledgement. It's about saying how God sees us and how God sees what God says about my activity and about my orientation. I am in alignment with God. That's what it means to confess. That's what, we're, that's what we're saying. The word means to say the same thing that God says about your sin. That it is not of him. That it is not right. It's acknowledging that we are simply falling short. And again, this, the, the power of, I think this is something that God knows about us. Have you ever, and maybe you have one today. Some of you might have one today. I was going to speak about in the past, but some of you might be carrying this burden right now. I've carried these kind of burdens before. I've done something. I'm something that I didn't want to share with my parents when I was still under their authority. Didn't want to share with my wife later in life. Didn't want to share with my kids. I've had those kind of things in my life. You might be carrying that around right now. And I can remember not, it wasn't long after Amy and I married that we were married. We had Carrie, our oldest. Amy was pregnant with our second child, Eli. And Amy and I went through a very, very difficult time in our marriage. Extremely difficult time. We didn't know how things were going to work out. That's not an overstatement. That's actually an understatement. Because I had a plan how things were going to work out. And it wasn't the way that God would have wanted. And I remember at one point coming back to Amy and when we were, re, when we were reuniting and reconciling, I remember sharing some things. And we have to be very careful about this. I want to be very careful how I, how I share this because there's a certain catharsis that happens with confession. And when we hold that in, there are times that it can really be destructive to us. But when we confess things that are very difficult, especially if we've let them go for some period of time, and when that confession happens, it can be very difficult for that person who's receiving that confession. And so I would tell that story to share with you this, 
I would, I think we need to keep very short accounts with each other and with God. The power of confession is that it's not something that continues to hang over you and produce guilt and shame and regret and pain and, closed, and a closed off posture. But I would suggest to you as well that we need to be very careful how we handle that because sometimes the person who confesses, again, experiences that, that wonderful catharsis that can, confession brings, the, but the person on the other end, for it, end of it, it can be very difficult. The power of confession that as we offer it up to God, however, is that when we offer our confession to God, again, he already knows all that we've done. He knows who we are, and he is ready to receive that for, uh, confession. And what does Scripture say? He immediately provides for us forgiveness. Forgiveness. God is the one who can bear that sort of thing best. Much better than a human being can bear it as we deal with relationships with each other. God is able to receive that confession confession and immediately provide for us forgiveness. The last thing we know, we know who we are. We know what we've done. We recognize the power of confession and how it leads to forgiveness. The last thing is, bona fide believers, of course, statement of the obvious, know Jesus. About this, John says in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So about Jesus, what do we know? First, we recognize, as John said in his passage, that he is our advocate. In the original language, the word advocate is the same word actually that's used when Jesus promises us the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Father. It's that same, he uses this same word, parakletos. It means properly to be called to one side, especially called to one, one side to provide aid for them. And so it refers to one who pleads another's cause before a judge. It's someone who comes alongside you. It's your defense attorney, so to speak. It's your legal assistant. It was, that's the, what the u- word was used for in the ancient world. And so what, what Scripture is saying is that God has brought Jesus alongside us so that he pleads our case to the Father. And the only way that he can plead our case to the Father is because of who he is, righteous, and what he's done, his sacrifice. And those are the two things. Remember, the complete opposite of who we are, right? We know who we are, unholy. We know who Jesus is, He's the Holy One. He's the Righteous One. So the only reason that He is able to be our legal counsel before the Father, the only reason He can be our advocate, the reason He comes alongside us, is He, as Scripture says, is righteous. And the third thing we know about Jesus, He is our advocate. He comes alongside. He is the Holy One, that is the Righteous One. And third, Jesus is the answer. He is the atoning sacrifice. In some of the older translations, that word that is translated the atone, in two words for us in this particular translation, atoning sacrifice, is the Greek word halasmos. Classically, it means uh, propitiating, and that's a word that we don't use at all anymore, but you, uh, that's the word that was in maybe if you grew up 
uh, in the church and you read the King James Version of the Bible, uh, you would see that word and maybe New, New American Standard too. Uh, it means, uh, propitiating means an appeasing or the act of appeasing. And, and it's interesting because if you look up the word of propitiation, it is the appeasing of someone who is angry. But at that word, I don't think directly applies to us because we know, again, from Scripture, that God is love and he targets us with love. So as it applies in this context, it refers to the person and work of Jesus satisfying God's holy law, not appeasing necessarily an angry God. That don't, I don't think that's the context of what this word is trying to communicate, what John's trying to communicate to us from what he says in the, in the rest of the context of the letter that he wrote. But he's talking about Jesus is able, because of his holiness, to serve as our halasmos. That he can appease God by satisfying the perfect holy law of God out of his character of being the perfect son of man, son of God. So we know who we are. We know what we've done. We recognize the power and necessity of confession because we know Jesus. He knows us. He comes alongside us. He is the holy righteous one and he provides the perfect sacrifice so that we can be bona fide children, daughters and sons of the most high God. We must begin there as we talk about authenticity because if we're not in real relationship with him, I would suggest to you that there's no way that we can be in authentic community with one another. That's where we're going to take it next week. I pray that as we continue to work through that, that God would challenge us not only in our authentic walk with him, but also in the way in which we relate to each other. Rich has a song that he's going to share with you in just a minute after I pray. So I'm going to invite him up onto the stage. And the rest of us, let's bow our heads as he gets ready. And let's uh, just close off our time in the word with prayer. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Thank you, God, for the way in which you're able to see us right where, we're, right where we are and love us so unbelievably, love us so passionately that you would offer your son as the perfect sacrifice that we might have life in him and relationship with you. I pray, God, that any of us that might be using anything else as a substitute for simple faith in you, a wholehearted trust in your amazing grace. If there's anything else, Lord, that we're adding to that or any other substitute, help us to recognize, God, that that's a false gospel and that the truth is found only in your grace, in your sacrifice, in your love, and our simple trust in that. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for his shed blood. Thank you for life. We love you. Amen.